Welcome to our podcast, Wayfaring Saints, where faith comes alive and the journey never ends. We're your hosts, Carson and Nathan, and we want you to join us on a transformative journey of faith and purpose as we seek to rekindle the flame of authentic Christianity, restore biblical literacy, and pursue the deep, enduring joy of knowing and following Jesus. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy today's episode of Wayfaring Saints. All right, welcome back to another episode. In our last discussion, we talked about redemption, and we looked back at the Exodus narrative and how it points forward to Christ's redemptive work. In this episode, we're talking about the call to live set apart in light of that redemption as God's people. Shortly after the Exodus narrative, God, he, he gives his covenant people all of these laws and rituals for living set apart. And he says to them, I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall be holy, for I am holy. So they're brought out of Egypt, redeemed from slavery, and brought into God's possession as his covenant people. Now, In light of that redemption, they are called to live a certain way. They are called to be holy because God is holy and they are his people. Online ministry got questions says, when God told Israel to be holy, he was instructing them to be distinct from the other nations by giving them specific regulations to govern their lives. Israel is God's chosen nation and God has set them apart from all other people groups. They are his special people. And as a result, they were given standards that God wanted them to live by so the world would know they belonged to him. Now, jumping to the New Testament, Peter references this passage when he charges believers under the new covenant to lead holy lives. It says in 1 Peter 1, 13 through 17, therefore preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy holy. So again, God is telling his people to be distinct from the rest of the world, that our lives would evidence the reality of our redemption and adoption as children of God. Now, before diving into the subject, I think it's crucial we first understand something. And talking about living holy, living set apart, and talking about obedience to Christ and his commandments, it's critical that we first understand our identity in Christ and how it is that we are saved, that we are truly standing firm on the foundation of the gospel. If we don't understand our identity as children of God, dearly loved by our Father, if we do not understand that we are saved by grace through faith and that we cannot work or do anything to earn or deserve our salvation, if we are not rooted in these fundamental truths, we risk falling into miserable religiosity instead of a loving, joy-filled, life-giving relationship. So going back to 1 Peter again, where he calls believers to be holy, he begins by saying, therefore. Whenever you read therefore in the Bible, that essentially means in light of everything I just said. So it's critical we pay attention to what came right before. In this instance, it was the gospel, our salvation by grace through faith. Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Paul in Ephesians 
This is what the whole book is about. He says that we are dead in our sins. And then he says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And once again, he drives this point home, making it crystal clear. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. And then after spending the first three chapters beautifully expounding on the truths of the gospel and our identity in Christ, Paul transitions with, I therefore urge you to to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And then he spends the rest of the book talking about living in light of our glorious redemption. But do you notice the pattern? You'll see this all throughout scripture. The The writers aren't saying, do all of these things and then you'll be saved or live this way and and then you'll be a priest, then you'll be holy, then God will love you. No, they're saying, do these things, live this way because God saved you by his undeserved grace, because you are loved, because you've been made holy, you've been declared righteous through the redemptive work of Christ. In other words, to offer a simple summarization, in Christ, you are now a child of God, so live like one. Francis Chan writes in his book, Multiply, following Jesus is not just about diligently keeping a set of rules or conjuring up the moral fortitude to lead good lives. It's about loving God and enjoying him. But lest we think we can love God and live any way we want to, Jesus told us very clearly, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So with that, let's dive into today's topic. When it comes to looking at living holy and set apart, there's a few roadblocks, and I want to talk about one specifically. So a lot of the founders of the Enlightenment that created the foundation for the way that our society thinks today, it processes. And I'm talking about our society, not just outside the church, but also inside the church. Some of the founders were men who were trying to understand themselves understand the world around them, understand how God related to things, how they related to God, and all these other new thoughts that were coming out. It was hard, and it is hard, to fault them for building the foundations for what would be now known as the modern roadblocks for living holy and set apart. But they did, in fact, build foundations for that roadblock. So quoting from Britannica on Descartes, Descartes created a universal method of deductive reasoning based on mathematics that is applicable to all the scientists. This method, which he later formulated in Discourses on Method and the Rules for the Direction of the Mind, written in 1628 but not published until 1701, consists of four rules. That means that he talked about these four ideas that would create the basis for how we have started to think. And granted, this is not a philosopher who stood on his own. There were people that argued against him. There was a lot of different philosophers during the time. He's French. He's from the French Revolution era, bringing up if we no longer have a king, we can now think for ourselves. And a lot of these people are processing through things at the same time. But he created this method with these four rules. And the first rule is accept nothing as true that is not self-evident. So if except nothing as true, that does not show for itself proof that it is true. Two, divide problems into their simplest parts. Three, solve problems by proceeding from simple to complex. 
And four, recheck the reasoning. And I want to really dive in a little bit about why this creates a roadblock for us Christians now as we begin to process as modern individuals in a modern society. Well, one, it gives us the idea that unless God self-proves himself to us, unless the Bible self-proves itself, our basis thought is that it's not true. There is a underlying current of thought, and we don't say it publicly. We never come out with, oh, well, this has to be proving itself for me to believe it, but that's the underlying thought. That's the way we've been raised, the way we've been taught. And you hear it a lot of times, well, prove to me that God's real. Prove to me that the Bible's real. Because there has to be underlying proof for us to believe something. Two is that we have to start something from its simplest part, and three, from simple to complex. So we can't take this crazy complex that is God, who is complex in every part of his being and break it down to understand it in a simple form. We as a society have to then take these simple forms and then try to create this construct of God. That's why you hear people make the joke of Sky Daddy or the the magic dragon in the sky that people worship or their imaginary friend because they're trying to break down a complex thing from a simple to be able to disassociate the reality that there is complexity outside of simplicity. There is something complex outside of our feeble understanding of the world. And so four is recheck the reasoning. There's why there's that constant debate, the constant, there has to be proof. There has to be continual proof. They could get all the evidence that the Bible is true. They could have all the facts that support Christ's death and his actual resurrection and still not believe because there has to be continual proof. So all this comes from Descartes' philosophy, but that also led to one of his popular ideas, and that idea is subjectivity. And that's an idea that we can see throughout the Enlightenment period going into modernity, which modernity is probably from about the 1800s to about the early 20th century, and we're currently in the post-modernity era. But for one, we see in the Enlightenment that there is this idea of subjectivity starting to come up, whereas beforehand, everyone, there was absolute truth. Everyone had to listen to what the truth was told to them. They couldn't decide on their own. There wasn't this free-thinking society. But during the French Revolution and many other revolutions, now you have a society that's able to think for themselves able to decide for themselves how they want their country to look, how they want their leaders to reign. And so they decided to create this idea through philosophers. It wasn't just like we all sat around in a table and said, oh, we're going to say that truth is subjective. But through these philosophers trying to understand the world, and can I note that a lot of these philosophers were Christian. They believed in God. And you can research that. Historically, it's claimed a lot of them believed in God. Descartes believed in God. He talks about this divine objectivity when he talks about subjective truth. But he brings up the idea that no one could know their own mind or no one could know anything except their own mind. He says, I doubt, therefore I am. And I think, therefore I am. That's where we get that phrase from. But this and many others like him, like Kynergaard and Nietzsche, these are men who created these philosophers who, for some of them, were Christian. Kynegaard was a theologian. 
or Kierkegaard was a theologian. And he he created this idea of relativism where we know our minds and we can only understand from our thoughts and from our experiences and what we can see. There's not an objectivity outside of us. But he also had the foundation that was there was an objectivity that is God. There's an absolute truth. But all the minor truths could be subjective. So these people have set the foundation for our cultural view of relative truth. That means that it's subjective to you that you get to decide what's true to you. Because you can only know your own mind and the experiences you have. So truth can therefore only be from yourself. This is where we hear the phrases like, live your own truth. This is my truth. So a lot of these philosophies have come out of direct conflict with other philosophies that claim to an ultimate truth or an objective truth, something that is outside of ourselves and true regardless of our experiences. This is the very nature of Christianity. We are called to attest to, believe in, and live out a truth outside of ourselves. It causes a massive roadblock for many in society to come to Christianity, but also for many in the faith, because we have synchronized these ideas, these philosophies into the Christian faith. We have stopped calling sin, sin, and in turn, we have made the Bible relative to us, not objective and outside of us. That means that we look at the Bible and we say, how can this be true to me? What can I take out of it? That's my thought. That's my idea. Rather than saying, how can I conform myself to what this is telling me to do? The Bible is an objective truth outside of us. Our experiences, our thoughts, our philosophies don't determine what the Bible says. And that's the downfall of many Christians, is that we believe that our experiences, our thoughts, our hopes determine what the Bible says. And a lot of our preachers do that. And it's really sad to see and a lot of our new believers are believing that because they're coming in and synchronizing culture into the church. So culture in society today defines truth, and it's usually contrary to scriptures. That means the subjective truth. So Christians deny the objectivity of scripture, and that's a pitfall for us. But if we can reclaim that and reclaim that there is universal truth, there is a ultimate truth, a supreme truth then we can get right back on the path that is to live holy and set apart. Okay, so as we transition into looking at the biblical precedents for pursuing holiness, I want to start by just reading some scripture, letting the word of God speak to you, and then we'll talk about it. So 2 Corinthians 6, 16 through 18, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate or be holy says the Lord. First Peter 1 Peter 1.17 And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with reverence throughout the time of your exile. First Peter 2 9-10 But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. 
1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 7. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For this is the will of God, your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the unbelievers who do not know God. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. 1 Thessalonians 2.12, we pleaded with you, encouraged you, and urged you to live your lives in a way that God would consider worthy. For he called you to share in his kingdom and glory. I could go on and on, but the biblical mandate is clear. We've been redeemed. We are now God's chosen people. And as his people, we are called to live and conduct ourselves as citizens of this new kingdom, the kingdom of God. And that's why Peter calls us to conduct ourselves with reverence throughout the time of our exile, meaning we are citizens of heaven living on earth and we must live as such. We are destined for eternity. And yet we find ourselves in this in-between, the already not yet, as we discussed in our last episode, And in this in-between, we find that there are these two opposing realities, so to speak. There's the kingdom of God, which we now find ourselves a part of, and then there's, quote, the world. I quote, the world because the New Testament often uses that to reference not the physical earth, but the system of man, its morals and beliefs that are entirely opposed to God. That's why James says that whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. Enmity meaning the state of being actively opposed or hostile to someone or something. So there's this precedence. We are in the world, but we must not be of the world. God has called us out of darkness, out of this fallen worldly system that has become corrupted by the sin of man and the forces of darkness. And he has called us into his marvelous light, into his kingdom. And now we live not according to worldly standards, but according to God's standards. And so there's a reference point for holiness, right? It's, it's God. He said, be holy for I am holy. So as believers, we cannot look to the world. We must look to God. And primarily that means looking to his word, which is God's self-revelation to man and conforming our lives to it. Deuteronomy 12.8 says, Lord, help us not to live according to what is right in our eyes, but to what is right in your word. So Nathan kind of got into this, but just going back to relativism. Relativism, which is very, very prominent in our culture today, is defined as the idea that knowledge, truth, and morality exist in relation to culture or society and are not absolute. In other words, there is no objective truth and morality. It's subjective to the circumstances of the culture we that we find ourselves within, and therefore it's constantly changing, it's shifting. But most importantly, relativism says that truth and morality do not exist outside of man. Rather, they are a byproduct of man, meaning truth and morality ultimately finds its source in man. Now, speaking of worldly systems being entirely opposed to God, how does that view compare to the verse I just read from Deuteronomy? Lord, help us not to live according to what is right in our eyes, but to what is right in your word. Christianity says objective truth does exist. Objective morality does exist. And they have their source in the creator of the universe. He has defined truth. He is truth. He has defined morality. And as believers, we must trust in his wisdom and not our own. And so the more we try to define morality and truth apart from God, the source of all truth and morality, the further we fall into sin, chaos, and darkness. And I mean, that's exactly what we see happening in the world right now. And 
you know, this is the danger that many Christians face today. We tend to think deception is about being tricked or deceived into doing something evil. But really, it's about being led astray by our own human wisdom, doing what we think is good instead of looking to God and his wisdom. This is what the author is saying in Proverbs 14, 12. He says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Think about that one for a while. It may seem good. It may seem right, but trust in your own wisdom and it may lead you down the path of destruction. So how is this relevant for our discussion today? I say all of this because we live in a world that is increasingly rejecting God and his wisdom, his standards. Like Nathan talked about, the authority of of scripture, the scripture being objective truth. And yet, if we are to pursue holiness, we must lay down our own wisdom and look not to the world, but to Christ and his word, submitting ourselves to it daily. So again, the word of God has to be a reference point. Francis Chan says in his book, Multiply, the call to be a disciple of Jesus Christ is open to everyone, but we don't get to write our own job description. Meaning the call to follow Christ and all that it entails, what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, a citizen of heaven living on earth, set apart for his glory. God's already written the job description, so to speak, and it's all in the word of God. And so we must live in this present world with our eyes ever fixed on Christ, living and abiding in his word that we might know how we ought to walk and conduct ourselves according to holiness and righteousness, pleasing and glorifying him in everything we do. Now, I just really quickly want to conclude with this idea of growing in holiness, what the Bible calls sanctification. Sanctification essentially means to make holy. Got Question says, The difference between God and us is that he is inherently holy, while we, on the other hand, only become holy in relationship to Christ, and we only increase in practical holiness as we mature spiritually. So this touches on a really important point, and that's when we are saved, positionally, we are made holy and declared righteous because we are in Christ, meaning he gives us his perfect righteousness and holiness. And yet at the same time, there is this practical holiness that God causes people to pursue. We read earlier in 1 Thessalonians, this is the will of God, your sanctification. You want to know what God's will for your life is? Well, here's a crucial part of it, that you would be conformed to the image of Christ, that you would be holy. So in Christ, we've been adopted. We've we've been made holy. Now, if we are truly born again and regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit, we will have a genuine desire to pursue holiness, to become more like Jesus, the one who loved us and gave himself for us. Our lives will look different. Second Corinthians 7.1 says, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. This is sanctification. It's an ongoing process. We aren't going to get it right away, but our lives should be marked by this upward pursuit of holiness through his spirit God is conforming us to the image of Christ. He's constantly working on our hearts, our lifestyles, our habits, our thinking, every aspect of our being. He is transforming to resemble and reflect Christ. But we need to live in submission to him and obedience to his word for this work to truly take effect in our lives. So then how do we live holy and set apart in today's day and age? Well, back in the day, the early desert fathers and the monastic fathers thought they had the right idea, which was to separate themselves completely from society. That was to remove themselves from the cities, to go out into the deserts or into the places that weren't inhabited, build these communities and create an environment where they could dedicate their lives to God through 
daily prayers, through meditation time, through working, through splitting of chores, and all these things that would create a functioning community outside of the world, as Carson said, which was society or how the the modern day culture is. But that doesn't really work out in the long run. Because in order to grow this community, as we're called to do in Matthew 28, 20, where it says, Go therefore into all the world, making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. So when we're looking at separating ourselves completely from society, yes, we meet the aspect of being holy and set apart. But we lose the commission side where God has commissioned us as a holy nation, a royal priesthood for a purpose, for a mission, and that's to go reach the nations, go reach people and bring them into the community with us to draw people to Christ. We get the divine privilege of being able to partner with God in bringing people to him to receive salvation from him. And when we look at the monastics, they had a wonderful thing going, but it doesn't work well when you're separated from society. So when we look at today's day and age, how do we live holy and set apart today? How can I live that out? And well, that that comes from accepting the call to be a wayfaring saint, to accepting the call to not be of this world, but still travel through this world. Carson mentioned it an episode back where it, it's in your going, do these things, where you're walking through life separate, different than people, and you're continuing to fulfill the things that God has called us to do, and that's to look different. So when we're asking about how do we practically do that, it's to make decisions that cause us to look different than people. And we can get this idea from other cultures. If we look at the Spanish culture, pastors, ministers, people who follow Christ decide to abstain from alcohol. Why? Because it makes them look different than society. Society there is highly driven by drunkenness. And that's just the truth is people abuse alcohol. And so to look different, they decided to abstain from it. While drinking alcohol is not a sin, drunkenness is. And so to look different, to call people to something different, to give them an example to look towards and to see, okay, the Christian life is a different alternative, they chose to abstain from doing something that the culture indulged in. So for us, what does that look like? It looks like doing things and deciding to do things that abstain from how the culture functions. So for us, for young adults, how can we abstain from things? Well, if our friends go clubbing on a Saturday or after, after school or whatever it looks like, we can abstain from those activities. And at some point, they're going to start asking, how come you never come with us? How come you never come party with us? And it gives you the opportunity to share about your faith. These are things that allow us to interact with society, but live as wayfaring saints in society. If your friends are constantly doing things that are contrary to the Bible, choose to not participate in those things because it shows us as different. This is where cursing comes in as well. While oftentimes cursing in terms of foul language is not viewed as a sin, and many Christians, many pastors that I know, curse and actively use words that are not very appropriate. While it's not necessarily a sin, it proves that we're very much like the culture. 
And if we choose to abstain from using foul language, then we're choosing to look different than the culture. And for me, I've chosen to abstain from that. And I have many conversations with people with people who say, how come you don't do that? How come you don't talk like this? And it gives me an opportunity to explain to them the difference, the different lifestyle that I have and call them to a place where they can now join me on my journey as a wayfaring saint, holy and set apart. And again, like I said, I don't believe it's a sin, but we do these things and we abstain from them so that we can show people a different lifestyle. That's what it looks like to be a wayfaring saint is to decide not to listen to Christ, to uh, non-Christian music so that people can say, how come you don't do that? How come you live differently? How come there's this in your life? How come these things show? And that's the practicality of living as someone who is a wayfaring saint. Yeah. And you know, it's interesting because I've noticed we tend to go throughout our lives asking what is permissible for us to do or participate in when we really should be asking what is most beneficial. And it's like, man, why is that our heart? Why do we try and see just how far we can go with something before it's actually considered at worst sin, but maybe just worthless? Shouldn't we instead be intentionally pursuing deeper intimacy with Jesus and greater obedience to his word? And of course, there's a line with this, but generally speaking, what if that was our heart? Then it wouldn't be is it permissible for me to watch hours of TV a day? No, it would be, man, watching hours of TV a day is really hindering me from drawing closer to God. What can I do instead to pursue intimacy with him and greater obedience to his word? What is going to better cultivate and nurture my growth in Christ? But there tends to just be this more self-centered way of living, being on the outskirts of Christianity, so to speak, seeking what is merely permissible, what we can sort of questionably fit into the Christian lifestyle, when our ultimate goal with the limited time we have here on this earth should really be pursuing that which is most beneficial and fruitful for our walk with Christ. And, you know, Leonard Ravenhill once said, the tragedy of today is that the church is pursuing happiness, not holiness. And it's like, where, where is the fear and the reverence in the church today? And, you know, I'm, I'm not talking about being scared of God. That's not what fear means. It's this, it's this holy, humble reverence, this, this worshipful reverence, recognizing God for who he is, the creator, the author, the judge, the, the, the king of the entire universe who upholds and sustains all of reality by the word of his mouth. And like, it's, it's not about us. It's about God. This is his story. This is his universe. This is his kingdom. Pick up your cross and follow him. Die to yourself and live for him completely and wholeheartedly. Stop living half-heartedly. And it seems like we care more about what God can do for us than we do what we are called to do for God. Scripture doesn't say, this is the will of God for you, your happiness. No, it's, this is the will of God, your sanctification. And I'm not saying that, you know, God doesn't want us to be happy and he wants us to be miserable all of the time. No, but I'm just saying your sanctification may come at the expense of your happiness, but your happiness will never come at the expense of your sanctification. Jesus promises us we will suffer. We will have to give up things that make us happy, like, like Nathan's talking about, maybe abstaining from doing something, maybe something that brings us joy. But, and we will experience trials and hardships, the, the, the refining fire of God, but this is all for our sanctification, that we would become more like Christ. And ultimately, often paradoxically, 
This leads to our greatest and deepest abiding joy to be like Christ, our blessed Savior, the one who loved us and gave himself for us. That is far greater than any earthly blessing, any momentary happiness. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Wayfaring Saints. Your support means the world to us. If you enjoyed it, please consider following, leaving a review, and sharing the podcast so that we can grow our community of Wayfaring Saints together. Join us next week as we continue to discuss what it means to follow Jesus as citizens of heaven living on earth.